0: The most, evil I know, man. The most Evil Guy the Most Evil Guy Hi, I'm Ree and I'm Jamie Lynn and you're listening to Most, most Evil, evil guy. guy, a fan cast about the show Barry on HBO. re we have a very special episode today. Yes, a very very special episode. I feel like
1: we need like soft music playing behind us, like on a very special episode of yeah. Most Evil Guy.
0: <laughs> There's like a Vaseline lens yeah. over the credits. Yeah, <laughs> but this is really special. We have it quite is. a treat for you guys today. I'm so excited. <laughs> so, do, first, do you want to say it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say first. I think ha- having wrapped up season one, we've done a full season of Barry season of the podcast Mm -hmm. I'd like to take a couple minutes up front to just kind of you know let's let's revisit some of the highlights from season one just a little reflection just a moment of reflection yeah and then we have a surprise for you guys yay I would like to know what do you think was like the standout moment from season one for you
1: oh man so there are so many But I think the episode that stuck in my head the most and the scene that stuck in my head the most uh, was episode four. And the scene was at Natalie's house, the party, Um, Mm. just because so much happened in that scene or like a little sequence of scenes. Yeah. So much interpersonal stuff between Barry and Sally. You got his veteran brethren coming in and kind of just showing the spectrum of like what what. You know, yeah, the, how veterans sometimes act, <laughs> and that
0: clash too between those two
1: worlds—the yes, culture clash between the worlds—and yeah. then, and that's the first place where the worlds collided in a way where other people knew it. The worlds have collided before in Barry's head, where he's at an event, and yeah. he's aware that at the memorial service, this is the first place where people from both parts of his life have showed up in the same spot.
0: Also, um, Fuchs
1: showed up. Yes, so looking. this literally
0: was like every aspect of his former and current live. Like yep. all mixed together.
1: And it was still like full with uh full of jokes. It was still really funny. But there was like a lot of tension <laughs> in that yeah. scene. So yeah, that's the uh, the moment that kept sticking out to me. And honestly I know that they even say, you know, toxic masculinity in episode five after that. The new, you know, Barry's new vocabulary word. But I had never, like, crystallized it the way that you had where you're like, this episode's theme is toxic, toxic masculinity. <laughs> and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I just think that episode is brilliant. And, yeah, two thumbs up. And so that scene was the one that stuck out the most. How yeah. about you?
0: I mean, I also went for, like, the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. So for me, mine is from episode five. And it's the scene where Barry is having the conversation with the acting class about mm. Macbeth and, yes, killing. and how, you know, does that make him a psycho? Does that make him damaged? Right. I really thought that the writers did a great job, like capturing that, like, moral injury that he'd suffered and also just it was a great microcosm of the larger conversation
1: yes what a great way to use the universe and you know premise you've created
0: yeah it was perfect to me that's it's one of those things that like especially you know you and I have both worked Mm -hmm. in the veteran sphere before it's something that like can be really hard to express to people or hard to encapsulate in a way that like makes it digestible for people to understand what that dialogue would be like Right, and this show just did it, and and like with all things, did it really efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just to me that's the standout from the entire season.
1: It is such a good uh, that that is a really good pick. I wish I'd picked that one. (laughs) But yeah, and you really in that scene see the the wedge driven between Barry and the people around him, and and start to get that sense of how lonely he is, which really comes to fruition in the end of the season where he's standing on the stage literally alone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And two, I think for him, it was sort of this like jarring moment where his past life kind of comes into this Mm -hmm. fantasy new present life that he's trying to live. And it's not till like, you know, people are saying things and it kind of clicks with him. Like they're basically talking about me. And I think that brings up a lot of things for him. Like he, he bristles quite a bit about yeah. that but also you know it it worries him like he really wants this new life but if this is how people are gonna view him can he have that
1: yeah can he and can he ever be real with anybody
0: yeah um,
1: yeah yeah that is a really good pick
0: yeah great pick <laughs> so the other thing I'm wondering is what are you most looking forward to for season two so season two I gotta say I, I wonder if our things are gonna be the same for me it's Hank
1: I just like he's such a great character and his like friendship sometimes allyship sometimes you know like the, his tough relationship with barry is it's going to be fun to see you know that borne out and i mean we've watched season two before so it won't spoil anything but he is just so consistently funny in a way that like adds levity when the show is otherwise like really like we're getting really dark, and so yeah, I'm, I'm psyched to see more of NoHo Hank. How about you?
0: I mean, he is the obvious pick. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I actually, the more I thought about it in in doing the homework for season two, mm-hmm. I really thought more like I'm I'm curious to see how the dynamic plays out between what I'm calling the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Yeah, which is Cousineau and Fuchs. Yep. and which one will win? I mean. Yeah. Barry has these two surrogate father figures. Yep. He obviously wants, like, approval and acceptance from each of them. You know, he's sort of drawn towards Gene. Mm-hmm. You know, by the end of season one, he's more drawn towards Gene. I think when, you know, we start season one, Fuchs has heavily manipulated him for some yeah. time now. So he's, he feels really beholden to Fuchs in the beginning. But I think he's more drawn towards Jean. But Fuchs still has a hold over him. I mean, when Hank tipped him off about Goron going to kill Fuchs, Barry saved him.
1: Yeah, And that could have been his chance to get away from him. To be free. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I really feel like there's, you know, this vacillation between Mm -hmm. the two. And I'm just curious to see... If Barry picks a side.
1: If he picks a father. <laughs> yeah.
0: Not to say that Gene's an angel, but... <laughs> no, no, but... He, he also is, doesn't like, kill people.
1: <laughs> the irony is that, like, Barry looks up to him as a, you know, father figure. Meanwhile, Jean, uh, you know, as, as we'll talk about in upcoming episodes here, has an estranged son, so... <laughs> I know. Crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: So... Um. I would. I will just say, you know, we've said this before, but season one was so strong, yeah. just right out of the gate. And I think that's down to the excellent creative team behind yeah. it, writing, directing, producing.
1: Just like, I mean, you remember a few years ago when you used to have to give a show a season to get on its feet. Yeah. And this is not a show like that. This is a show where you're in good hands from the get-go. Yeah. And even all of those big narrative challenges that every single show will face in a pilot because you have to do so much exposition. They're just handled
0: so deftly
1: that uh, it's just such a a great season of television.
0: And one of the co-creators, part of that wonderful creative team putting the season together is Alec Berg.
1: He was kind enough to sit down with us. And uh, this is the exciting surprise we're telling you about. We have a little showrunner session. We got to chat with him for about half an hour. So For those who maybe don't off the top of their head have his bio handy, (laughs) Alec Berg is the co-creator of Barry. He is a showrunner, executive producer, writer, director, all the hats, hats, so many hats, all around cool guy and genius. And he uh, was nice enough to give us some of his time so we could talk about the show that we love. And if you, you know, obviously he uh, is showrunner and co-creator of Barry directed several episodes ep on all the episodes uh written a bunch of it but he's also done silicon valley he's done curb your enthusiasm he is like a seasoned hbo veteran he has been doing it for like 15 years he's been at hbo before that he's worked on a bunch of stuff but you'll know him from seinfeld he was a writer and producer on seinfeld And then he's done a lot of feature work, too, whether it's like those rewrites that you kind of never even know that (laughs) the person did it. But also like big movies, uh, including family movies like The Cat in the Hat, Eurotrip, The Dictator. He co-wrote on Clear History, uh, which was another HBO special. And he has been well recognized for his like brilliant efforts. He's been nominated for like 23 emmys across the course of his career um he's won three different uh, writers guild of america awards a wow. peabody award and that was for barry uh he's been nominated for 11 wga GA awards a dga award a golden globe and this is funny because he actually includes this in his like credentials he's been nominated for a razzie as well Ooh, for so, what <laughs> i think it was for the cat in the hat i was that's exactly what i was thinking i
0: think it might be for that
1: <laughs> Um, so he's really cool, really humble, and just super, super smart. And uh, we had a great conversation with him.
0: I also want to add, he also wrote for Conan O'Brien very early on in right. the 90s. Yes. And if anybody is interested in hearing Alec talk in depth about his, you know, early days of writing, the Inside Conan podcast has a great interview with him all about yes. that, those early days in the 90s of him, you know, writing for Conan, then getting the job on Seinfeld and then moving into Curb Your Enthusiasm. So there's a great podcast from July 31st, 2020 of him talking about that that portion of his career, if anyone's interested.
1: He is just a a really, you know... A really smart guy, and he'll, you know, you'll hear this uh, in our conversation, but there's so much he's picked up from other brilliant people over the course yeah. of his career um, that have made him this, like, writing, editing machine that now is able to make this brilliant show.
0: He's really, he's just finally honed yes. his craft.
1: That is a great way to put it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
0: But we were so lucky to be able to sit down with him. It was really nice of him to take the time. So we hope you guys enjoy this interview with co-creator and showrunner of Barry, Alec Berg. You're going to love it.
1: All right, we are so excited to be here with a very special guest today. This is Ree. I'm here with Jamie Lynn and none other than co-creator of Barry, Alec Berg. We are gonna pick his brain today. He was kind enough to give us uh, you know, a little bit of his time and we're excited to get in there and get picking around. Um, so we're gonna dive right pick into questions, Alec. Awesome. Get picking. <laughs> okay, I've got my pick and I'm ready to go. Uh, we're going to start with our our first question, which is one that is personal to Jamie Lynn and I. We both have a connection with military and veteran community. Barry is a Marine. And I remember, I think around episode four, uh, when I was first watching this in 2018, texting Jamie Lynn and saying, I wonder who they had to consult on this. Because um, there was some cultural stuff that just rang so true um, when you got, you know, Taylor and everybody on screen. So a couple questions from that perspective. What sure. did your research kind of look like about, around the veteran experience uh, before you dove in to write?
2: It was sort of, it wasn't that, it wasn't done quite in that order. We, mm-hmm. we got kind of deep into the pilot before we landed, really on the idea that Barry would have been a Marine. It was, his background is a little bit more nebulous. And I think when we started, we started with this idea that somehow he was just naturally good at this. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of one of the core ideas when we started working on the show was something that was sort of based on Bill's experience on SNL, where Bill was not a guy who was in the Groundlings for seven years and trained in improv and and Mm -hmm. decided that he had, you know, he never like moved to Chicago for improv Olympics or any of that. He just came very, very naturally to it. He actually moved to LA to be He started working as an assistant editor. He wanted to be a film director. And a friend of his was in an improv group, and he started doing improv and was just instantly amazingly good at it. And like a year and a half later, he ended up on SNL. Wild. But but the interesting thing about it was that he didn't really have like a huge passion for it. He's a very anxious guy and live performing on TV was giving him panic attacks. And like, it just, he was not super happy you know, living that life. And he was mm-hmm. he was having all kinds of health issues because of the stress. And so one of the jumping off points for Barry was we thought it was interesting to have a guy who was incredibly gifted at something that he derived no enjoyment from and probably shouldn't be doing um, mm-hmm. and having to fight against the idea. I mean, it was like a seven foot five guy who hates playing basketball, like <laughs> yeah. this incredible gift, but he does not want to use it in the manner... in in which, you know, it's most effective. So we started from that kind of jumping off point and we thought, well, he should be a very gifted assassin, but obviously being an assassin is not a lifestyle that he loves. And also, Um, how do
0: you stumble across knowing that you're good at that?
2: Well, this was, yeah, I mean, you you know, obvious question now, Um, but at the time, yeah, where were you when we started? Um, But so we started thinking like, okay, well, you know, it, it, hewing to reality has always, has always been a super helpful thing. Like I worked on Silicon Valley and yeah. we had tons of technical mm-hmm. consultants and I felt like by getting all of the tiny little details right, it lent an air of reality and nuance to it that just felt real. And the mm-hmm. most flattering thing I hear about Silicon Valley from people who are in the tech business is that it makes them nauseous.
1: Um <laughs> that good always so work really true.
2: <laughs> you know, because it just people feel like they're at work and it does not feel comfortable to them. And that always <laughs> made me feel really good. So we sort of circled Barry's origin story. And as we started developing the relationship between Barry and Fuchs, we started to build this narrative that Barry had been a marine and Fuchs was a friend of his dad's, and we never really clarified it, but somehow Fuchs knew Barry's dad, who had passed away. And Fuchs clearly had been in some position of being sort of like an uncle or something that mm-hmm. to him, but had clearly been manipulative and had taken Barry's skill set and perverted it into this job. Mm-hmm. So once we landed on the idea that he probably would have had, and this was also just doing a lot of research into contract killers and people who do. Who, ha- who have that skill set. Um, and people were saying, well, he we probably would have some kind of a military background and training. Yeah. Um, and as we started looking at that, I would say Sebastian Younger's stuff, it was very influential. He wrote a book called Tribe that we read. Um, that's just about how, as humanity gets further away from you know, killing its own food and mm-hmm. setting up its own shelter and living off the land. As we get, you know, more sophisticated, and if you're unhappy, you just take a pill. Yeah. We're getting not more happy as a society, but less happy. Um, mm-hmm. And he also made a couple of really great documentaries, which you may have yeah. seen uh, Restrepo and Korengal, um, yes. that were really helpful to us. And that's where I think we started to pick up a lot of the sort of just how how Marines talk to each other mm-hmm. um, and there was real, to... oh, go ahead. Nope. Did
0: you happen to read on killing or on combat?
2: <sighs> I'm sure I did. There was a there was like a three month period where, and I can't Everything even remember, remember. what mm-hmm. any of it was, but those are very familiar titles yep. to me. Yeah, I, I went into like a deep sort of research hole on, yeah. on all of it. And again, I think we, we both really loved the the tenor of the way that the guys in Restrepo just hung out and how every other word was fuck. Um, And it was kind of, it it became sort of like musical, Um, you know, and it's It's interesting. I've worked, I've worked with my judge who is a musician and Bill Hader is a pretty good musician himself. So there is something to, and you know, Bill being a talented mimic, he's a great listener. And so we were listening to all that going, oh, this has a cool rhythm to it. And and so when we had Barry's marine friends show up, we just had this idea that instantly every other word out of their mouths would be fuck. And it just felt like they had like this own language, their own language that they were they were speaking. Well, um,
1: that felt we, so real to yeah. me.
0: <laughs> we talked oh, good. about how oh, good. realistic that was.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I used to be a career counselor for veterans, and the joke was that the hardest thing about this transition is gonna be no longer swearing in a professional setting.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that and, and that in acronyms. Yeah. My, uh, my brother was in the Navy, and uh, he was in, in training down in Miramar when I first moved to LA. Mm-hmm. So I would go down to Miramar and hang out with him on weekends and him and some of the guys in his squadron, and they would talk for 10 minutes, and I literally did not understand Yeah a word it was all acronyms
1: and then that moment at the in episode four where he's you know talking to his Maurice he falls right back into those old habits and everyone around him is like what are you talking about that's just yeah and that was nailed it that was really
2: so that a, a lot of what tribe is about and a lot of what Barry is about is somebody who's been very isolated finding community and so The shininess of the acting class to him was about this is a guy who's totally cut off and isolated. And all of a sudden it's, oh, these people are supporting each other. And he goes out to to drinks with them and, hey, I can help you with headshots and I can get you a job. And all of a sudden he's being supported and affirmed by this group of people. And then when he's feeling distant from the acting class and the Marines show up, he kind of morphs into that. You know, and and so it was important that it felt like, oh yeah, these are guys he knows and and spent a lot of time with, and and that was just a helpful way, I think, of of depicting that.
1: Well, we loved seeing that on screen, and I have just a curiosity, which is, what do you think Barry would be doing if he had not gotten manipulated by Fuchs? Uh, what would his transition plan have
2: been? I, you know, what's so interesting is we had a lot of conversations about that, and. It's been kind of an ongoing conversation. And it's really one of the things that this show is about, I think, is mm-hmm. at what point does the manipulation become your own fault? Like at what point are you responsible for standing up when you know that what you're being pushed into is wrong? Yes, and that's been <laughs> that's been really an enduring question you know, from the beginning of the show, like where we started, Barry was clearly being hoodwinked and Mm -hmm. manipulated and lied to and pushed into things by fugues, right? But as the show goes on, there has to be some point at which Barry has to take ownership of the fact that he keeps killing people, right? It's not all just stuff that is forced on him. So it's, I mean, we talked a lot about you know, if not for Fuchs, where would he have ended up? And I I mean, I like to think that he would have ended up in a less desperate, awful place. Mm -hmm. But he's also, as a character, always been somebody who we talk a lot in the writer's room about Cousineau and Fuchs being Barry's two fathers. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's really a war between those two people as to like who, where he will go and who he will follow. And so what that says about him is he's a guy who just who needs somebody to tell him where to go and what to do and how to live right um and and because of that he's very easily manipulated and taken advantage of um and And it's one of the favorite like we talk about oh there's different berries and there's this berry and that berry and the angry berry and the mean berry naive berry is like my favorite berry
1: Yes, and you know what I love about his naivete, too, is that it lets you comment on things like Hollywood industry things, and he's yeah. just observing it with no judgment, but his observation is the judgment. Oh, so
2: yeah, and when we landed on <laughs> on the thing where Barry gets an audition and just doesn't realize that that's not an everyday occurrence mm-hmm. and it drives Sally nuts, yeah, those are always super fun <laughs> super fun scenes to write because he just falls a- backwards into stuff. And it, of course that's infuriating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> to everyone around him and the fire in her eyes. And that tees up our next question pretty nicely, actually, which is those early episodes.
0: Yeah. So somehow we find ourselves still empathizing with Barry after he's done a lot of bad stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the goal, right? As a writer.
2: <laughs> well, um, again, it's, it, it, it I can't say it was the goal. It's definitely been kind of the interesting ride of the show is, you know, if you're going to start a show off depicting a guy who's a killer and you're trying to ask an audience to really invest in, you know, caring about that character, then you've got to explain why this person is a killer and you have to take it out of their hands. Right. Which is why we kind of made Fuchs the puppet master. And, you know, really if there's a heavy, at the beginning of the show it's fuchs right fuchs is the one who's lied to him and manipulated him and and clearly knows that this kid is beyond depressed and and isolated but that helps him right it makes him more impressionable
0: so
1: Um, that's such a great point because his active choices in those early episodes are in pursuit of his dream and everything bad that's happening to him is yeah that's relatable
2: yeah 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 and it Mm -hmm. it it was important to make him. And I th- I think it's one of the reasons that the audience decided to really invest in him and really felt like they cared about him is that this guy is being manipulated, but it's also one of the interesting things that as the show has gone on, people say a lot of things about how, Oh, geez, I don't know. Sally's very narcissistic and she's petty and manipulative. <laughs> I don't know if I want Barry to end up with a girl like that. And at the same time, you're going, well, yeah, but, Barry's a murderer. (laughs) To to an extreme degree. (laughs) Like, like at what point, you know, and that's the joy of series television is you can play with this stuff over time. And I think that's interesting.
0: So you're saying that the way you guys set him up to be empathetic by making it Fuchs's manipulation at first. And that's how you get the audience to empathize with the character. And then you move forward from there and Barry starts making more choices.
2: And I think the pilot was about a guy who's been manipulated and pushed into doing bad things, Mm -hmm. realizing that this is not the way he wants to live and having the courage to take a decisive action, right? Even though he knows, Fuchs has explained to him, he said, you can't go to an acting class because you made a decision to be a killer. And now that's all you can ever do. And if you choose to do anything else, very, very bad things will happen. And yet Barry chose in that moment to pursue happiness, no matter what would happen. Um, and in a way that decision, thinker? what's that?
0: Is Barry a long-term thinker?
2: Or well, he, he just certainly do... wasn't in that moment. Yeah. Right. I think he was just like, I see where I am and I see where I could be and I'd rather be there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was a, I guess you could argue it was an impulsive decision in that moment. Right. Because, yeah. On paper, it didn't make sense, but that's that's why I think that decision was so telling, right? It's such a character mm-hmm. revealing moment where he's had no courage and no agency to step away from what he's doing with Fugues, even though, I mean, he's not a dummy. He knows that he's yeah. not happy, right? And he's saying to Fuchs like he can't really articulate it, right? He hasn't been through years of therapy. He doesn't have the language, but he does say, I'm just feeling really unmotivated and mm-hmm. he's depressed. He's one of, my,
1: one of my favorite things about the season is him starting to pick up that language through the acting class. I just love seeing that happen on screen.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. No, those I, are. He's always, kind of, that's again. It's like the naive Barry who starts to say things like, "You know, she said I made very good choices."
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's toxic masculinity. Like yeah. That. yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, So your writer's room is phenomenal um, and we are uh, every episode we start out by shouting out the writer for the episode um, and you have a really cool diverse mix of folks. What was your vision when you set out to put together your room?
2: I think it's just about for Bill and I, it was about making sure we had enough people in the room who had different perspectives so that Mm -hmm. we covered as many blind spots Mm -hmm. as we could. Um, And there have been like the in season one one of the examples I always cite is Barry at one point gives Sally a laptop and yeah. Bill and I were thinking of that as just a, a really cool gift. And we were <laughs> thinking, well, it's, it would be unusual because Sally probably doesn't date a lot of guys who have a lot of money and Barry doesn't seem like he has a lot of money, but he's been contract killing for a while. So he probably has a big stack of cash. So it's in character for him to give her a laptop. And I think, initially bill and i were thinking of it as a she would be a little surprised because it's like oh that's that's an expensive gift and maybe she would think wow this guy must come from money or something but what we weren't really thinking about is what all the women in the room said immediately which is that is a creepy gift <laughs> yeah. and bill and i were like i don't i don't think so i think that's a <laughs> cool gift. and they're like no dude yeah that's if somebody gave me a <laughs> laptop after that amount of time, that would be super sketchy Mm -hmm. and a big red flag. And (laughs) immediately, Bill and I went, okay, well, if that's true, then where do we go from there? And it just became a much more interesting way of of telling that story. So that was a a specific example of one where if Bill and I were left to our own, you know, white male idiot viewpoint, we would have told a story that I think a lot of people would have you know, particularly women would have been like oh that's that doesn't seem that's not how she would react
0: but I think pairing that in the same episode where Sally has that interaction with Mike where her agent not agent yeah. um, was perfect because we totally understand Sally's reaction then
2: yeah yeah well that I, I'm i sad to say it came from a story I actually heard um, mm-hmm. that an agent was talking about Meeting a client and having to make the decision about whether he wanted to sign her or fuck her, yeah. um, and I just remember going, "Yeah, oh, that's that's gross."
1: <laughs> so um, gross and disheartening. And yeah, then I mean, but played into the whole theme of the toxic
2: masculinity. And also, every word of that was exactly real.
1: <sighs> you know? Oh wow!
2: And again, I think that's that's one of the things that we try the hardest to do and that applies to character story theme everything is just what what is honest and real and where we've gotten into trouble writing the show is the times where you go oh you know it would be hilarious or mm-hmm. you know it would be super cool if this happened you know and then you kind of try and back into that and sometimes you can do it and sometimes it's like okay not only is that funny and cool but that's exactly what would happen But a lot of times you just have to work forward and you just have to go, okay, given the situation that these characters are in and knowing who they are, what would they actually do? And sometimes they do what you want them to do. And sometimes like the laptop, you just have to listen to it and scrutinize it. And sometimes it's just, that's not what would really happen, you know? And there's just like a discord to it that, you know, just doesn't flow.
0: I will say there's really nothing on the show where we've went, I don't know why they did that or that feels weird or bad or i can't see so and so doing that
2: good well that i i mean that's as it should be right like yeah. that's that's yeah right is is it good job and weirdly i would say sometimes when i when i hear people say that it's they're saying well that i'm not sure i don't believe that that would happen it's it's stuff that actually happened in real life you know where you just right. go well not only would it happen it did happen
1: yeah hmm. It's kind of like what Margaret Atwood says about the Handmaid's Tales, that everything that she's written about is something that has been done somewhere at some point in the world. You know, it it is it's true. It just didn't happen in that order, in that place and time.
2: Yeah. 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 And even though sometimes even though some people don't believe it, it's real. On, on Silicon Valley, we would get into these situations sometimes where you'd ask like a software engineer, like, well, would they ever do something like this? And the software engineer would go, no, that would never happen and then you talk to like a manager and they would go yeah that happened to me twice last week mm. that always happens and it's sometimes your perspective <laughs> says it would never happen yeah even though it is real
1: right it's never happened to you right um so All of that intentionality that you're putting into all these different departments and parts, um, you're bringing together all these moving pieces from so many departments. And we heard a great anecdote about Kusno's book and how the props team wrote three pages and that they were really funny. Is there another time where someone from props or set design or costume just kind of blew your expectations out of the water?
2: Oh, it happens so many more times than I could. I mean, to isolate one moment would be impossible. I mean, all of those craftspeople, every department, especially if if you're good about making sure that everybody understands what the job is and what the mission is. And when you get everybody rowing in the same direction, Mm -hmm. the number of hours that people spend killing themselves to get it right. I mean, that is the nicest thing about a creative endeavor like this. You know, when you get people working really hard, not because they're paid to, but because they really care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just so nice to go to work every day. you know and and part of that from from our perspective is making sure that everybody knows that they have autonomy, that they're appreciated, that, but also that what they do really matters. you know, and if they get it mm-hmm. right, it really helps. And if they don't get it right, it can it can cause trouble. You know, so people feel like they have skin in the game.
0: I will say one thing we talk about a lot on this show is the wardrobe, which I know is not flashy. It's not anything you think that people would discuss, but just little things like the fact that Barry has a special shirt that he always wears to acting class.
2: Yeah. It's an acting
0: class uniform. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. that That was a Bill decision season one where he... He really thought that that Barry would be treating this like a like a job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's not really fashion forward, but he would treat it. He would go, I need to wear something nice and presentable because I'm going to work. Yep. This is what I want to do for a living. And that's what a guy with no fashion sense thinks (laughs) somebody wears to work. We Um, thought
0: that J Crew outfit off the mannequin looked great. It was,
2: (laughs) yeah, no, it was, it was perfect. And and in the John Ham fantasy, the way his hair is cool, (laughs) and he's got a cool necklace, and he had like a couple of rings on.
0: Yep, Um, cool guy.
2: (laughs) yeah, Yeah, and it's it's amazing how all of those things make such a difference. And a lot of times, you write a lot of stuff. Because when you're reading it, you can't see the actor's faces, you can't see hair, makeup and wardrobe and you go, well, how are we going to know that Barry thinks he looks cool or how are we going to know you have to say something or, you know, oh, Barry looks in the mirror and checks himself out and gives himself a thumbs up or whatever. And then you just see it in the moment and you go, "Uh, of course, he thinks he looks good. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to, (laughs) you don't have to sweat it um and that's certainly that's especially true of performances you know where you spend a lot of time going well how are we going to know that this guy's really disappointed that he didn't blah blah blah. and then when you see an actor playing disappointed you go that's how we know look at their face
0: so that tees up our next question yeah i was gonna (laughs) say so we've heard you talk in other interviews about how you know when you guys saw henry winkler it was just like he took gene in a different direction how have other cast members kind of shaped their roles over the course of the series.
2: I think everybody has such owner, and again, this is the joy of series television, when you work with talented people and you give them some space and some autonomy, you know, and let them do their jobs. A guy like Anthony Kerrigan, is, it's, he owns that character so thoroughly yeah. that, you know, a lot of times when you're directing or producing something, there's a hundred thousand decisions you have to make in a day. And there's, you know, sometimes there's literally lines of people out your office going, can you look at this shirt? Can you look at this drawing? Which color paint do you want on the wall? What carpet should we use? And to be able to say to the, to the wardrobe people, when they go, Hey, we've picked out six shirts for Noho Hank. What do you think of to be able to just go, just ask Anthony.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: He knows he'll pick, He'll pick the right one. He knows better than we do
0: <laughs> because
2: he knows that character so inside and out. Um, and that happens, you know, with Sarah's the same way that it's just mm-hmm. like, what do you think Sally would just ask her? She knows. Mm-hmm. Um. She's so good. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everybody is just so on their game. And again, this is what's so fun is when you get people on their games, it gets everybody else on their games, you know, And it's really interesting how the culture of a show works, where if people start going, oh, this is one of those shows where everybody's kind of just taking and, you know, then it just everybody feels that and it just becomes a thing of everybody wants their own joke and their own line and they're looking out for themselves. But this cast is so good and they're so professional and all they really want is for the show to be good.
1: And you can see that effort and it makes it such a joy to watch even when it's sad. <laughs>
2: yeah, and I I will say, I mean, you know, everybody, but but specifically I'm thinking of of Sarah has always been really aggressive about saying like, look, just make sure she's real and interesting and there's lots of sharp corners and weird turns and just make her damaged and interesting and real. I don't give a shit if she looks cool. I don't care if she, you know, if she's put together, I don't care if she wins, she just wants kind of real grit.
0: Which I love, that's, it's such contrast to Sally, who we talked about in the episode where she does the interview for, uh, what is it? Like we bought a zoo, audition, not interview. Yeah,
2: Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: And her concern is like, is she playing a millennial mom? Like, she's so concerned with, like, being young, like, being
2: perceived Well, it's just about how could she have a daughter who's, I think, 15, right? And there was that quick aside (laughs) where she's like, you know, because I probably had her when I was, like, 12. But whatever it was, like, that's her concern is, wait, I don't want to play 37 or whatever the age was, right? Like, but again, it's Mm -hmm. like that. And it's so fun to watch how fast she is with that stuff. And you can just, like, you can feel it like you can feel the character being concerned about yeah you know like I'll audition for it and I'll take the part if it's offered but I don't want to play old
1: you can (laughs) see the calculus behind her eyes it's like so it's she's amazing to watch everyone is amazing to watch on the show I I want to be mindful of your time do you have time for one more question of course sure wonderful um so the humor on Barry it manages to avoid your like basically subvert your expectations. You don't go for the obvious joke. Um, And I'm wondering what your litmus is with so many funny people involved um, for cutting a joke, even if it might make you laugh.
2: We have cut so many things that made us laugh just because, I mean, really what it comes down to is, is it honest? Is it real? Does it move the story? Does Does it inform the characters in some essential way? You know, when I started writing, one of the first big shows I worked on was Seinfeld. And we would shoot at 28 or 29 minutes and we would air at 21 and a half. And so you'd cut a third of the show after you shot it, right? So you'd spend all Mm -hmm. this time getting this script really tight and making sure it's like, okay, this is the finished product. And then you would have to cut a third
1: of it. (laughs) That's unthinkable.
2: really learned from from Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld how to be ruthlessly efficient. And if you can cut it, you will. And Bill and I a lot of times talk about trying to shoot the edited version of something, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, and the more you edit, the more you kind of get a sense of like, and it's a a terrible feeling to be on a set shooting something going, none of this is going to be in the show. Mm-hmm. you know but you don't know sometimes
1: yeah right
2: until you see it and sometimes things surprise you and sometimes things that you think are just cannon fodder become like how could we ever have thought this wouldn't be in the show but one of our favorite things to write is Sally being incredibly like harsh and snippy or petty and <laughs> obnoxious and narcissistic <laughs> But we do have to be careful because she's so funny doing it, but there's like a toxic level of meanness that can (laughs) come out, you know, and you laugh at all of them individually, but the sum total actually moves you backwards. Mm. Um,
1: That's a great point. Yeah, and I- You don't wanna cross a line.
2: No, and it's just like Mm -hmm. the, it's sometimes it's the addition of subtraction. um, Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, Bill and I, are still learning that a lot of times you're like, okay, so here are the three things they talk about in this scene. And then you get into the edit and you go, this is just, scene's just a mess. And so we try more and more on the writing side of it to make, okay, this is a scene about one thing. He wants this. She wants him to want that. That's what this scene is. So lose that fun joke, Mm -hmm. lose the whole thing where he goes over to the window and sees that it's raining because it's not relevant to the kernel of what this is. Um, we, and you we, just have to beat it up and beat it up and beat it up. And
0: yeah, we've know, talked you, about the efficiency of the show. And in the last episode we did, body. we covered the the finale of season one and I counted, and it was like 20 separate scenes in 33 minutes and i i just yeah. don't even know how you pack all that in and some of the scenes are so short but they move us along it's amazing well they have
2: to they have to and if they don't you you cut them
0: yeah mm-hmm.
2: you know and i like i said it's just the discipline of having done it for for this long that you just know sometimes and sometimes yeah. stuff in the room when you're writing makes you laugh and laugh and then you go it's never going to be in the show like mm-hmm. we just can't we can't justify it and I like to think that people's reaction to the show is a sort of the result of our having been very, very disciplined and mm-hmm. concentrating yes. on on story and character and emotion, and the the jokes that happen happen organically, and you know shouldn't ever feel sweaty or like they're punchlines or they're written, and that's one of the joys of the show to me is that mm-hmm. the the comedy is sometimes so surprising. You know, yes. and it's it's just because when we're writing it, it's like we're writing a super dark moment and somebody says something that's super funny. And you go, oh, God, yes, <laughs> that's where the, you know, that's well, where the laugh, it's just
0: the tone of voice, especially that Henry Winkler <laughs> uses when he gives a line yeah. or yeah.
2: nothing <laughs> makes me laugh. Nothing makes me laugh harder than things that I can't explain to you why they're funny. <laughs> there was a thing in the pilot that made me laugh so hard every time Anthony said it is he's talking about the lipstick camera. And he said, I got this video by sneaking out, uh, sneaking into their hotel room and planting a lipstick camera similar to this one. And <laughs> I just thought I, it made me think, okay, Noah Hank knows he has to talk about this, but he doesn't have the actual camera, but he went to the trouble of getting another one <laughs> to bring as a prop. To show and it just spoke to like his preparedness and and also he just wants to make sure that barry understands what the camera looked like and he took pride in doing the job and i don't know why that made me laugh but every time he said it it was like my favorite thing in the show and it was so dumb and so not a joke
1: <laughs> it's still it's a great character moment and it makes you laugh it's like double whammy <laughs> well alec thank you so much for taking this time to be with us today um actually giving us a bunch of extra extra time really appreciate it no Um, thank
2: you guys for uh for i mean this is why we do it so that people like you like really lock into it and it's so it's so heartening and so humbling you know to to love something and then show it to people and have them love it too
1: And love it, we do. Ah, oh, that was so amazing. He was so generous. like He was so nice and open. And, you know, we, we asked a bunch of questions that are like nerdy little writer, writerly hearts wanted yeah. to get at. <laughs> yeah, he was just so cool to share that time with us. And do you want to tell them, or should I?
0: Alec has offered to come back in the future.
1: <laughs> Woohoo! So hopefully we'll get to do another episode with Alec. If you have any questions you would want to ask him, Go ahead and hit us up on
0: Twitter or Instagram or at Most Guy Or Gmail at MostEvilGuy at gmail.com. If you're, if you're off the Twitter, like Alec is. Yeah, yep.
1: <laughs> I actually just signed up for the service that he posted that he was going to try. I don't mm-hmm. know if it'll work because
0: it's in beta. So, yeah. let's see. But hit us up and let us know. And we really hope you guys enjoyed this very special episode. Well, normally we end the show with a quote from that episode that week, but since we don't have an episode this week, we'll leave you with a quote from Alec Berg.
1: Yes, we'll share some of his wisdom. This is from the podcast Jamie Lynn mentioned earlier, uh, Inside Conan, and he was giving advice for screenwriters. He said, if I could give one piece of advice to anybody starting in show business, it's just don't be an asshole.
0: Mm, Sage advice. Mm -hmm. And scene. And
1: scene.